Jun. Thank you for listening to the latest episode of Women Podcast. Today we have uh, Zhang Lijia, one of the most well-known Chinese writer writing in English, and one of the most charming one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely, definitely. Sure, so, sure. Yeah. So Lijia, thank you very much for joining us. Wow, today. thank you for having me. It's, it's our great pleasure. <laughs> it's a great honor to have you. That you know, we, when we see you on stage giving speech, and we were like, "Oh my God, will we have the honor to have you joining our podcast um, now today?" Is the dream comes true? Exactly. exactly. Yes, yeah, so I heard that uh, you guys are doing one of the few, you know, podcasts, uh, you know, run by women and in English. I said yes. You know, <laughs> thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Pleasure. <laughs> I'm a big fan of your books, and uh, the one that I read is your memoir. Um, socialism is great. <laughs> it's not about socialism, by the way. It's all about me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> which is very important. And the second one, the the latest book is called The Lotus. The latest one. It's not yeah. uh, uh, before. I've written a few books, but the uh, one uh, published was uh, I also wrote a course of the book. A history book with my mm. ex-husband, mm -hmm. and I wrote uh, a book in Chinese about Western image of Chairman Mao that oh. unfortunately didn't pass the censorship. Well, of course which, not. Uh, yeah. Which is why I now write English. We'll elaborate later. Okay, sounds great. Yeah, if anybody who has read Lijia's Socialism is great. Oh, it's a, it's a great memoir, and I loved it. And for Jinjing and me, we are born in nineteen eighty, so we have very different. Life, you know, different childhood. So sometimes it's kind of a difficult to understand the struggle that you had back in the day. Mm -hmm. But it's a great reading um, that we had. At least for me, I feel like it's a way for me to understand the life. A young soul, young free spirit, mm -hmm. you know, born in that period, nineteen sixties, and grew up in nineteen seventies, and then need to be become a factory worker in nineteen eighties, right? Mm -hmm. So your life is very legendary. And help us to understand what's going on in the whole society. I think uh, you know earlier at dinner we talk about uh, you know we are I don't know how many years gap you know sixteen years gap between us uh, something like that something like eighteen that. eighteen years <laughs> that was kind of feel like a really modern generation because things in China you know changed so rapidly right. um, you know for example as we were growing up and um, many basic things uh, were rationed, for example, grain, edible oil, mm. cotton to make clothes, meat. All these things were rationed, but uh, mm. you, you guys probably, by the time you were growing up, things were abundant. And that was really different. So I'm mm. talking about my childhood. I wouldn't describe I had a miserable childhood. I know I was well taken care of when I, my grandmother brought us up. And I just always had this uh, craving for meat because uh, every month we had probably had a chance to eat meat twice mm, in only yeah, right. small proportion so we always look forward to uh, the Chinese New Year and because that was the only time we could eat meat without yeah. limit so mm. we always ask my grandma when would be the Chinese New Year I, know. <laughs> wow. I think kids probably don't don't care about Chinese New Year these days right yeah. probably yeah. not yeah but actually that you funny you should mention that because Yajun and I did a, um, an episode on Chinese New Year, which that we sort of reminiscing about 
our memory of Chinese New Year's um why Chinese New Year's feels so special to us mm-hmm. and then I remember that you men- mentioned about your family and right. also my family when they were growing up they said exactly the same thing um and then one of the reasons that make Chinese New Year so special is because that they can have something that they don't have they don't yeah, meet they normally meet, have. yes <laughs> yeah that uh, it's just attached special meaning to China Chinese New Year but however for our generation where basically are overwhelmed by all sorts of stuff like mm. need food clothes mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. entertainment right mm. yeah and i just i just remember you know we used to uh, you know such a had always had such a craving for meat i was just so skinny i often felt hungry and now i'm extremely conscious about food because i often felt hungry i often <laughs> i dreamed about eating meat you know <laughs> You know, we did certainly didn't have good meat to eat. But even basic things like a green vegetable. Mm-hmm. Right? And in the winter, there were just very little fresh vegetables. We had mm-hmm. to get up. As children, we had to also kind of help parents. We got up early to buy vegetables. Mm-hmm. And I remember well, my hands were frozen, swollen. You know? <laughs> and now we had the opposite. And now, at least I'm talking about myself, you know, try to stay slim it's such a battle you know suffering <laughs> opposites you know overnourishment <laughs> true i heard my mom describe to me before that during the the food russian period because her family is a huge family they have mm. like six kids and plus the two adults so it's eight members in the family mm-hmm. and when my mom was a teenager her siblings were teenagers as well mm-hmm. so everyone eats a lot in order to get more food so they try to go to weight and buy relatively smaller or bad food uh-huh. for example like when the government sell like a sweet potato uh-huh. yeah if you don't need eat tons of sweet potato you can go to buy the normal ones mm-hmm. but because my mom's family has like eight members so they always wait in the line uh-huh. for the smaller one uh-huh. for the ones already cut into half mm-hmm. so in that way for example like a one rmb normally you can buy 10 jin mm-hmm. uh, for sweet potato but for her smaller ones she 20 jin mm-hmm. so the, the whole family can eat more relatively mm-hmm. yes right. yeah it's kind of unbelievable yeah for just me. so yes it's, it's so difficult, difficult to yeah so difficult to imagine i, I even that, don't yeah. like sweet potato <laughs> <laughs> Now I, I try to eat less meat. <laughs> um, for the uh, listeners who mm-hmm. haven't read your book, can you give mm-hmm. us a, like, a very brief version of your life? Oh, wow. Well, how much time do you have? <laughs> <laughs> we have all day. All day <laughs> so I was um, born in Nanjing on the banks of Yangtze River. And I grew up in a residential compound which belonged to the factory my mother worked for all her life. So all my neighbors worked for the same um, factory. factory. Yes, mm-hmm. and all my friends were the children factory workers. So becoming a factory worker uh, was the most likely possibility. So, but but mm-hmm. I had a grand plan. I want to become a writer and journalist. Actually, I didn't quite understand the difference between writer and journalist as I do now. And I had this dream ever since um, my teacher read my writing as a good example to show other students. But then I, when I was 16, in 1980, and I was just taken out of school. In 1980, you know, Deng Xiaoping introduced uh, reforms opening up mm-hmm. right, in the December 1978. Yeah. But uh, that 
policy which slowly transformed China, but it took some time to before it became effective. Right. Mm -hmm. So in the 1980s, there was um, economy was far from um, vibrant. So there was a temporary policy which allowed children to take over their parents' job. So my mother, being educated, you know, never she never saw the benefit of education. So she saw the most important thing was to to secure a job for her daughter. Mm -hmm. So she left her job for me to take over. Um, and she got another job and it was not a kind of a would you like to have a job I mean I, I want to live <laughs> right, in the west I, I was just so surprised the kind of um, choices that children have darling would you like a pasta for, for dinner we'll just be grateful whatever we you know <laughs> <laughs> but anyway so I'm, you know, I, I wasn't um, it's not a choice of dinner but uh, uh, anyway including the choice of dinner or including the uh, clothes everything was decided by my mother and my parents mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I became a factory worker at the age of 16. So I there I worked for uh, 10 years. And my mother wanted me to be grateful because uh, it was a state-owned factory. Um, among other things, it mm -hmm. produced intercontinental missiles. You know, in those days, working for a state-owned enterprise was very prestigious. And yeah. enjoy cradle-to-grave social welfare. And I right. never caught iron rice for because right. you will never lose a job. Yeah. Um, she wanted me to be grateful, but I hated it in my life. <laughs> Why did you hate it? Um, there were so many rules. Now China is changing. People enjoy so much more personal freedom. But at that time, you know, working for a state-owned uh, military-style factory, there were just so many rules. And the first day we entered the factory, we were told not to do this, not to do that. Uh, no mm. dating after three years entering the factory, no lipsticks. You know, when the width of the trousers were, shouldn't be too big, you know, too big of the flare, it'll be kind of a lava cool, kind of oh, a right, trumpet, yeah, yeah. trumpet trousers become a symbol of bourgeoisie liberalism. You know, couldn't be too tight, that's too uh. sexy, you know. Just some, right. There's so many. I worked at the factory for 10 years and I never got a promotion because I, I'm one of the people who have natural curly hair. In those days, only people with bourgeoisie outlooking life would wear perms. So I didn't have correct ideology I didn't right. deserve. But you know, there were just lots and lots of rules. It's mm. difficult to imagine now. Um, so I hated my life. I want, so as escape route, so I decided to, uh, to study English, which of course um, was not very easy, but um, it changed my life, I would say. Okay. How, how did you start studying English? I decided to study English, English, as I would say at that time. Um, uh, <laughs> my English was sounded so awful, but I, I was always willing to talk. <laughs> and I started to borrow, you know, in today's China, I'm sure you grew up probably quite easy to listen to the American cartoon. Um, right. You know, there's so many device yeah. apps, but at that time it was All really video difficult video platform, yes. you can yeah. have yeah. it on demand. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. so I, I, I started with, I borrowed a radio from my cousin, I listened, um, in the beginning it was a Xu Guozhang, it was very boring, oh, kind of, yeah. oh, oh, it was really bad, very political, less uh, dry, you know, um, 
you know, like in teaching phrases like uh, a foreign language, the tool for class struggle and things like that were very boring. <laughs> and then uh, I listened to um, a new concept in English. Which is yeah, we used that one as well. Yeah, it's a new concept. Yeah. So once I started, I just become fascinated by a language system so different from our Chinese. And also, I think just culturally opened my eyes. I remember then my after my English improved, I, I listened to BBC's program mm. called Follow Me, and I watched with amazement how grannies in their seventies um, would wear floral patterned dresses. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah, that's not a Chinese style. No, definitely no, yeah. not. At that time in China, it was quite a, still quite great. Right. Most people still wearing kind of a lumpy Mao jacket. Mm. So anyway, yeah. So and then after my English. Got a bit better. I started going to this place called English Corner. Did right. you have that? Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, when I was in college. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Like Still. in middle school and high school, they're like English. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, yeah. yes. So just people got together, to practice the English, and yeah. we had one in Nanjing, and every Sunday I would go there, and we were always talking English very loudly. And then <laughs> the sheer volume would compensate the lack of fluency. <laughs> so, <laughs> so sorry to interrupt here, but do you self-taught yourself English? Yes. Yeah. Wow. Think about us. I started to learn English when I was in my fifth year of elementary school. About you know when I was about ten years old, we were forced to study English、yeah. in elementary school, in middle school, in high school, in college. I feel like I didn't do that much in college other than studying language, studying、yeah. English. I can't imagine you know. A language we won't know how difficult it is that you taught yourself. Yes, and also I I don't think I'm particularly language gifted. I was remember I was traveling with my ex husband in Russia and he picked a lot more language than I than I did. I'm not some people can just pick up language like that and not me. I mean I、uh, my English is alright now because just because anybody who have sanctioned this much effort as I have. Probably can reach this level, I think. <laughs> But you are one of the very few who write in English、yes. and become, you know, bestsellers. I, I have been studying, <laughs> you know, diligently, and、uh, I'm, 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 I'm willing to try at the English corner. You know, there are so few foreigners. If one、mm. foreigner passes by, we virtually <laughs> jump over here and say, "Hello, you know, Hello. <laughs> where、can、you from?" You? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> How much money do you make? You know,、oh, really? <laughs> are you married? Or we just or, well, Chinese people have different sense of privacy. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But don't worry, I'm not gonna ask you about this kind of questions. <laughs> <laughs> I hope I've grown a little bit more sophisticated. <laughs> yeah, I remember when I was in college, I went to some of those English corners. But later in the years, I guess it become really creepy. A lot of like guys just randomly try to. Find a language partner and start to look for boyfriend or girlfriend. Kind of hookup device. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's not going after all. I did meet、uh, one of my boyfriends. <laughs> so maybe at that time when you go into the English corner, the English corner is still quite innocent. Yes, as it is. But in fact, you, I think innocent is really the right word. I think there's the、uh, the whole nation in the eighties was.、Uh, Very innocent, you know.、Mm-hmm. People are not very、uh, materialistic, and you know, not you know, money worshiping only come later.、Yeah. There was、uh, 
and then yeah. there's no like agenda you know behind whatever you want to do because right now like I've seen so many people like doing things not because they like it or mm. passionate about it because that they feel like this would benefit them from whatever reason so and I think the your generation and also my parents and our parents generation were living in such a, a lot simpler life right chill 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 but I do feel like 80s is um a very interesting period. I think it's the most fascinating era. Yeah, I mean, I was a kid at that yeah. moment. I, I know nothing, you know, other than my kindergarten. I have no idea what happened in the outside world. But based on what I've read, I feel like it's a period that, you know, a lot of new thoughts going on. Absolutely. And you know, um, for the first time, some great literature were translated for the first time. Mm. And not just literature, but also um, Nietzsche's books, you know, mm, wow. God is Dead, yeah. uh, you know, Freudian's works were translated, introduced mm. China for the first time, and it took really China. All, such books were so like hotcakes. So you know, I remember everybody was reading Nietzsche. You know, his God is dead. Kind of the idea mm. of reject perceived value was just wow. somehow just kind of a stir so much emotion. People mm. really yeah. loved. I mean, amazing. And uh, and for the first time. You know, like I remember one of another popular literature book was Hundred uh, Days Solitude, mm, Magical right. Realism. And for the first time, all these new ideas, um, you know, stream of consciousness, magical realism, you know, were introduced to China. And also in the 80s, I mean, still overall, China's more open. But at that time, it's just a little bit of a space, a little bit of freedom. China saw outbursts of creativity. You know, so I mentioned the literature works and these modern techniques inspired great writers like uh, you know Yu Hua, right. Mo Ye, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Wang Meng, who served as uh, China's uh, cultural minister, mm. wrote some really kind of avant-garde style works. One of them I still remember, not not so famous, but I, I mean, had a big impact on my life on my reading. Was the Liu Suola wrote a book called You Have No Choice mm -hmm. about the music college student's life, about the frustration with standard education, with strict hierarchy. Mm -hmm. um, and no, no, no obvious plot line. I mean, mm -hmm. just wow, you can write books like that. We read, and also one of the things I really loved was the Misty Poems, Meng Long Shi. Yes, was just uh, before kind of. Poetry is also used as a kind of propaganda tool, a shouting yeah. slogan. But now <laughs> yeah. suddenly you're talking reducing uh, rich imagery, talking about emotional feelings. And but yeah, I was, I was a factory worker, I was reading misty poems. I started writing poems at that time. <laughs> right, yeah. I feel like in the 80s, a period like a lot a lot of new source comes out mm. and people are really motivated to jump out of the old regime or mm. old system and mm. try to find a new way you know like you you know who was a, a factory worker self-taught english and look for a new life and at the same time like later in 1980s i think mm. jack ma who is the founder of alibaba mm. these mm. days right mm. he was wandering on the west lake and looking for foreigners mm -hmm. to practice his own English yeah. and then he built an empire today. Yeah. yeah, I feel like in that generation people are so motivated and they want to find their new life and a new direction. Yes, also you must remember that the 80s for the first time Chinese people 
a, a kind of start of break the kind of unbuttoning TMMR straight jacket. For the first time, they were allowed to pursue dreams, you know, mm. dream something impossible. You know, I was just learning English. Uh, people called called me toad who dreams eat swans meat. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, yeah, I feel like you know, that's very fascinating because um, a lot of people, when they're brought up by their family or gener- like their, their parents, that the in your generation or parents' generation that they were very followed by the rules, right? Mm-hmm. Follow the tradition mm-hmm. and they are actually not encouraged to be creative or to to pursue their dream or to or discover their self because mm-hmm. there's no concept about individual. There's no concept mm-hmm. about what do you want. It's right. more about what you are destined told. to do yeah. and yeah. what you're told to do and and I, I feel it's fascinating to see how people like yourself to discover that there is another possibility in life mm-hmm. that's worth your pursuing because I, I imagine at the time there's no role models set ahead mm-hmm. of you you can't just say that hey this person is who I wanted to become and if I follow this path I will you know, achieve something. Mm-hmm. And I feel like because it's like a blank, a, a piece of blank paper in front of you and where you have no direction. But then how do you train yourself and how do you tell yourself that, you know, this is a path I wanted to take and you want to break out of your the tradition that, you know, very heavily uh, constrain everyone in the society. Well, I, I decided to teach myself English. It really was... Uh... Um, kind of escape route because I hated my life so much in the factory I wanted to get out mm-hmm. that gave me kind of motivation once I left China I was over in England uh, my childhood dream stirred so I uh, took a course in journalism and, and mm-hmm. when I come back I started my career um, helping journalists we were called fixers mm-hmm. I think folk fixers are really unsung heroes some you know award winning journalists they often have some great fixers behind them I know. <laughs> I totally agree. As a former fixer. <laughs> could, you, could you just explain a little bit about yeah, what's fixer, fixer? What's yeah um yeah fixer has been in china for a really long time i think mm. since 1980s so there are various names for this job assistant, Fix, yeah, yeah assistant fixer yeah. researchers news assistant i think interpreter, yeah, yeah, so interpreter. We, just, yeah we fix things we set up interviews called fixers but anyway basically we are assistant to a foreign journalist so that's what's yeah. my first job and right. um, you know I loved it and uh, I met some very inspiring journalists for example Pulitzer winning journalist Ian Johnson uh, I worked for him and we subsequently become very close friends and become my mentor um, so anyway I did that for and then um, uh, I worked for television and then I, I really enjoyed it I mean I opened experience but uh, I also become frustrated because I didn't have the final say when I my view was different and mm-hmm, people, mm-hmm. people did not always listen to me. So I decided to quit and become freelance journalist. I still remember that was uh, September uh, 1996. That was the last time I had a so-called proper job. <laughs> <laughs> I became a freelancer ever since then. That was the best decision I ever made. It was not an easy path. You know, I, I, I tried to write in English. I still struggled uh, with a language. Even today, I'm sure I've noticed the mistakes I made. So I also believe that I have something different compared to my 
Western colleagues. Mm -hmm. That is the insight into Chinese society. I grew up in China. I, I think I have a better sense where China is coming from. You know, this insight I hope is valuable. So mm -hmm. now I, based in, in Beijing, I work as a writer. Um, social commentator, I'm still a writer, a few features, but mostly op-eds for Guardian, South Morning Post, New York Times. Um, I give a few lectures, I'm doing a few things. But all these different things still come down to one thing, which is, you know, I want to be the cultural bridge between China mm -hmm. and the outside world. And China has become too important to be ignored, yet there are right. so many misunderstanding um, misconception so in my small way I hope I can help people to understand where China is coming from what's happening now or where China is going once you have a better understanding of China you'll have less fear mm. Mm. after you finish your last proper job so-called proper job <laughs> why did you choose this path English is not your first language but you decide to dedicate your life to write English to become an English writer mm -hmm. that's a hard choice why, why did you choose that way because that's something interests me because that's mm. something I feel passionate about that's really courageous again then you've done a lot of courageous thing right it's not easy for everyone to leave an iron rice ball job right yeah, particular so once you started period. that then i guess you know you know nothing <laughs> would stop <laughs> you <laughs> yeah i also have a like a, a personal question i i can't help noticing that in your book in your mm. memoir mm -hmm. uh you mentioned a lot about your fashion sense for example like in one of your dating uh -huh. uh, moment you, uh -huh. you wrote that you want to wear something really ruyan, yes, right? Yeah, yeah. Eye-catching, yes. Yeah, yeah eye-catching, yeah, yeah. yeah. like a, a red sleeveless dress. Uh -huh. I think one of them is that. Yeah, I was trying to picture that. I mean, before this podcast, I went to several of your um, talk. Your fashion says it's very ruyan, particularly your, your flower on your hair. <laughs> yeah, not, not maybe not, not today. <laughs> yeah, but in a lot of occasions, particularly when you give a lecture or uh -huh. something, you always have a, a beautiful flower on uh -huh. your ear, on your hair. Uh -huh. It's really nice, very uh -huh. outstanding. So why is the flower? I guess in some ways it started as kind of an uh, expression for rebellions. You mm. know, I was, since I was young, I mm. was uh, very Tinghua obedient, <laughs> which is kind of a most desirable quality for Chinese children. You know, mm -hmm. good children should be Tinghua, right. listening to words, obedient. And then, you know, I, I guess I become... You know, I, you know, as we're growing up, we're told women should be kind of a subdued, you know, don't stand out, you know. Um, yeah, be invisible. Be invisible, yes. So I just want to reject that. I think uh, as I was growing up, and China was still quite grey, and I didn't have a chance to, especially when I was working in the factory, didn't have a chance to express myself. Now mm. I love clothes. I think that's the way to express my myself, express my personality and then also I guess compensates for what I didn't have you know we're talking about the 80s that's the time of my coming of age you know China mm -hmm. has kind of changed from like a black white picture mm -hmm. to the color photo in the 1980s most if you look at people Chinese people describe China would describe a country with one billion blue ants everybody was wearing a male jacket and another journalist uh, talked about uh, famously joked, you know, after Deng Xiaoping introduced reform opening up and Chinese women suddenly got breasts. 
<laughs> before everybody was wearing, you know, a lumpy mud, because, you know, right, woman right. is beautiful, however beautiful we're all buried in her. Right. <laughs> and also, I feel like they were um, suppressed to hide their feminine uh, features, yeah, for example, and yes. sexuality. For example, my mom told me that when she was started to develop, to, to grow from a girl to a woman, mm-hmm. yeah. that she had to bound her yes. breasts yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. so that to wear like a really big shirt mm-hmm. to cover it because that if people notice that you're a woman or you're, you're different than mm-hmm. others, then it's, it's a bad thing. Mm-hmm. But some, by the way, this is not a uh, communist thing. But before, you know, women, lots of places, women yeah. were told to, you know, do, do not, mm-hmm. do sure not try to kind of uh, tempt men or, you know. Even when I was a kid, I remember when I, in my teenager, I start to grow breasts, mm-hmm. and suddenly I noticed, you know, something is different about me. And I remember there was this kind of weird old style, you know, bra. I don't know whether. <laughs> you had a, it's like those kind of white column kind. Oh yeah, yeah. and it's oh, kind of yeah, makes it flat. That. Yeah, 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 as flat as possible. Yeah. And so yeah, I, I insist. I told my mom that I really want that kind because it's kind of weird that I look very different from my other male um, classmates. Yeah. I'm not sure it's an age thing or whatever. Yeah, I try to blur the the line, you know, between girl and boy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, but later it's what changed, you know. Right now I try to show as much as possible. (laughs) Good on you. Exactly, few decades, right? What did you notice changed? Really big change of the society? Well, what has now changed? Um, I think one significant but yet less talked about aspect mm. is the personal freedom. Mm. I think for your generation probably you take it for granted. And I, I was mentioned briefly when I first entered the factory there are just so many rules. Right. Uh, for example, um, at my factory, the people from the security department were stationed at the gate, mm. watching people. Um, at that time, the, some young people tried to keep long hair. Mm-hmm. If, their hair, if men's hair exceeds the earlobes, they will be sent right. back. Yeah, they use the ruler to marry, yes. right? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. And book. also the trousers, if the trousers are too wide or too narrow, you'll be kicked out. Um, I think in recent years, the party has kind of retreated from the details of people's lives. Mm. Um, I think this is really important. I mean, I, maybe I should... I mean, 1989 was very much a watershed. You know, mm. 1989, the June 4th event happened for many complicated reasons. Not only because people wanted human rights and great uh, democracy, greater human rights, but also because people... people didn't feel they have enough freedom, enough choices, mm. and corruption was become rampant in the mm. 80s. So after 1989, was well, still a taboo subject in China, 
but the government has learned a lesson. For example, they would slowly, after 1989, the authorities slowly grant people per, more personal freedom. Mm, okay. you, know, you, see, you look around, you see people can choose where to live their life, how to live their life. Mm. You know, I mentioned in the, in the 80s, I didn't get any promotion because of my curly hair. Now you can curl your hair, you can dye your hair, you can shave off your hair. It's all your choice. Um, you know, people can you know, choose where to where to live. Um, so yes, I think that's you know on the other hand, you know, if on one hand people are granted more personal freedom, on the mm. other hand, you know, don't talk about political reforms mm. or dissidents are locked up and human rights law is locked up and. So, and plenty of opportunity to make money. So, I know there's a steel cage, but the cage has grown so big, you often don't mm. feel the limit. Mm. So I think it's one of the probably common misconception is, you know, if you read stories about in UK or New York, and, and you think that China is so, rep people are so repressed and controlled. Right, but, yeah. uh, I mean, lots of people, all new Chinese people quite feel free and as long as you don't try to kind of overthrow the government or something like that. You know, I think mm. that's one major change. What has unchanged? What's that changed? Well, the, the Deng Xiaoping introduced reform opening up, as I mentioned, transformed China, but it, he's, he basically followed the rough line of uh, economically liberal, mm. politically conservative. Mm. So that's, that's, that's having changed. Yes. China's a mixed bag. Politically still authoritarian system, uh, economically we have market economy but the market economy is not a total free market economy right. the government still had a uh, lot of control the right. all the important and uh, uh, you know petrol mm. you know, the key yes, industries yes yeah. mining key industry still controlled by government and government mm. has uh, got their own regulation um. yeah, right. <laughs> and also which in a very funny way that I feel the whole world is changing towards that. Yeah, unfortunately. Look at Turkey, look at uh, Russia, yeah, so. Yeah, and also in the US and, mm. you know, Brexit, you know, oh. it's all, <laughs> it, it's, it's all sort it's of like depressing. moving backwards yeah. or, or however you describe it, moving to a different different di direction. Yeah, so it's, it's an interesting time of view to see where, where the whole world is going to. Yeah, at least for the U.S., we'll have a better visibility after midterm election. Mm. Um, at least we can end right now this kind of a crazy drama and the change of policy every single day. It's just crazy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But people love drama, right? They are like, Not, I yeah. think Donald Trump helps so much newspaper juice to so, <laughs> so unfortunately, you know, people often live in their own um, echoing chamber. They do not mm. see the big conservative yeah. people. Not very, they are not passport holders. They are not open-minded. That's, that's really that's unfortunate. Yeah. But in the eighties, at that time, we really sort of made gore. You know, the mm. beautiful country. You know, we were yeah. so idolized and everything. You know, I remember we, you know, there is there's kind of a ditch and say, look at this jungle. You know, with America, this will never happen. You know, yeah. <laughs> you really idolize America. Was, right. America is really kind of the beautiful country. Yeah. yeah, and now, like, I just feel like I couldn't help but noticing like China is catching up in so many other ways. Where a lot of my friends, when they visit U.S. for the first time, and they were like, "Okay, so how do you feel about it?" and they were like, "Oh, it's not as great as I expected." Mm -hmm. It's fascinating how you see like 
China can catch up so much in the space of, let's say, 20, 30 years. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess when we talk about that kind of catch up, it's more about you know hardware, yeah, um, technology, that kind of thing. Yeah. But I, I, I still feel like it's a very dangerous thing that a lot of Chinese feel like we are catching up. And the, some of them even feel like, you know, maybe we're better than U.S. Mm-hmm. would, than Europe, would than other, other country. Mm-hmm. And then stop learning, we'll stop thinking about what we can do better. Mm-hmm. I think that's a very dangerous sign. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you look at some companies, or even Chinese government, when they expand in the overseas market, uh, when they make a policy, they stop thinking about, you know, what we can improve. Rather than, you know, that's our way, that's the China way, you know, mm-hmm. my way went our way. <laughs> yeah, in terms of like a political regime or economic structure, you know, there's a lot of things that actually we can improve. Mm-hmm. But if we just close eyes, think we're the best, you know, it's really stop us mm-hmm. from improve. That's a very dangerous thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You talk yeah. about just what things change. I think the... Uh, since we just talk about this, uh, mm. you know, I was just talking about this last night um, um, at an event. You know, this, I'm talking about the impact of reform opening up. This mm. year's, you know, will mark the 40th anniversary of the mm. reforms opening up, which really is the greatest social transformation. Mm. Yeah. China at that time, end of 1970s, was one of the poorest country in the world. Now it has grown to be. Uh, the second largest economy in the world and in terms of consumption the biggest biggest economy um, it just really it is uh, it can be called an economic miracle and I just right, also true. think that uh, almost 800 million people being lifted up poverty both uh, having the largest uh, number of uh, middle class you know 300 million people those are really great achievements but on the other hand then there are also setbacks mm, right. um, for example, income gap, and um, what start with the in, environmental degradation, mm. pollution, they just made right. part of it, uh, corruption become more serious than before, uh, and also the um, um, income gap, income gap has been widening, um, on the onset of reform, the Gini coefficients, the index, was only 0.17, now China has become one of the most unequal societies mm-hmm. 0.45 or even 0.5 mm-hmm. um, and on the other hand the social mobility is also narrowing um, which is means if you're born poor you have a little chance to move upwards yeah. mm-hmm. um, when reform and the first was first introduced and um, there was great mo- social mobility had a really a little leap forward a great leap forward um, there were Curti Hu, the private mm. business, were mm. allowed to, you know, burst into the scene, um, and the, that improved lots of uh, social mobility. But now, after all these four decades of reform and opening up, um, I think of a vested interest group. You know, China is kind of a state-controlled market e- economy, mm. which means if you have connection, you have just that unfair advantage. Yeah, true. And the hukou system. If you are born in the rural area, it's more difficult for mm. people from rural area to go to go far. Right. You know, yeah. looking at how many kids from rural China, seven to eight percent can go to university, mm. um, and also you know education used to be a uh, one of the equalizer, but now right. it has like everything's been become uh, commercialized. You have to pay 
more yeah. better because it's a better place. So anyway, all this um, um, social mobilities narrowing. So that's uh, mm. all this uh, really worries. Yeah, sure. I have a story about that. My my dad. Every time we when he comes to Beijing. Mm-hmm. He really likes to visit a mausoleum yeah, at the yeah, Tiananmen yeah. Square. Yeah. Once he even bought some bracelet for me and my husband. From but the mausoleum? For, from mausoleum with, with the mouse uh, image on it. Okay. <laughs> and I, again, I didn't, I, I didn't get it. I, was, I, I mean, Mao is such a controversial figure in China. I said, you know, why do you like him so much? You kind of wo- still worship him. Yeah, yeah. Mm. His reason is very simple. He said, you know, back in the day, Everyone is poor, but mm. everyone is poor. Yeah. But these days Equality, we're yeah. rich. Mm-hmm. But you know the the gap between rich and the poor mm-hmm. is huge, mm-hmm. and the corruption problem mm-hmm. is yeah. is a major issue, mm-hmm. and people kind of are hard to find the uh, equal uh, treatment in the society anymore. Mm-hmm. So that's why he really missed the mouse period. Yes, yes, mm. yes. Yeah, that's very interesting perspective for me mm-hmm. to think mm-hmm. about. Certainly, mm-hmm. I think widening the income gap and you know smaller uh, social mobility have caused quite a lot of resentment. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I think another negative impact I have to say is, uh, uh, you know, uh, is impact on women. Mm-hmm. And of course, the reform opening up brought huge opportunities to women, especially urban educated women like you guys, <laughs> uh, like you ladies. <laughs> um, but. Um, Unfortunately, um, market economy has also led to widening gender inequality. Mm-hmm. Urban area, women make uh, 67.3% what men make. In the countryside, even lower, uh, at 56%. The reason for that is because as China shifted from the planned economy to the market economy, mm-hmm. women have taken too much shoulder shoulder too much of the burden and cost. Right. For example, state of enterprise. Women always the first to go and more more women were let off. And once women are let off it's much harder for them to find jobs. Mm-hmm. And university students also find harder time finding employment before the jobs were allocated. And also, you know, some companies will refuse to hire women yeah. of childbearing age. So and do you feel like that's actually changing um, now? As you know, the our current generations, we we consider ourselves very lucky that have to have received education mm-hmm. and also be offered the opportunity to work. There are a lots of women like us, uh, being really freely to choose what they wanted to do, which is, I think, to to me, it's it's a great improvement. Mm-hmm. But obviously, that we certainly feel like we're in a privileged position where we're born in the first top tier cities, mm. you, know, right. uh, you know, equally, not not like rich, but like adequate decent. family, decent right. yeah, yes, family yeah. background mm. and then have the opportunity to receive education or even go to, to study abroad mm. and then come back and have a decent This job. is something my Western friends uh, find difficult and they, you know, I'm talking about uh, Westerners you know, working in China they often say, well, Chinese women are amazing, they're so capable, they're much better employee or worker than Chinese <laughs> men. I agree, yeah, <laughs> I agree. <laughs> but, um, the way, uh, um, but on the other hand, and also, uh, if you look at the business field, you know, women, the, the top 10 self-made right. women, top five, uh, top 10, five come from China. 
um, but on the, if you look at a big picture, mm, still, exactly. um, yeah. market economy has undermined the gender equality. about this novel, not uh, <laughs> the lead character is a migrant worker turned a prostitute. So I keep telling people, not, not <laughs> another memoir based on personal experience. <laughs> <laughs> Because yeah. I wrote a novel, a mom memoir, so people right. are kind of expecting you know, I write another memoir. Anyway, oh, so right. that's just, um, um, yeah, so <laughs> it's a book for me, this book is a about a social tension brought mm, by the reform okay. because the prostitution touches up um, some most fundamental issues China is facing, mm, mm, you know, mm. rural urban migration, yeah. um, gender issue, the issue, you know, the, the battle between tradition mm. and the modernity, you know, moral decline. So anyway, so that's just the prostitution, just a window to see yeah. the social I think, tension. I think that's a really interesting topic because we were, I was just wanted to ask about how did you come across this or how did you want to do this topic because in the book that you wrote about the prostitutes life uh -huh. and, and how do you get into that community uh, and then to, to write about this novel well i joke that it's not a memoir based on my personal experience i've done quite a lot of things but not prostitution yet <laughs> <laughs> intellectual prostitution only <laughs> Trying to sell my articles, <laughs> um, but uh, there, was, there is a personal connection. My grandmother, you know, shortly before she passed away, I learned from my mother she was a prostitute, and she, you know, I was shocked. And my grandmother was somebody who brought us up, and my mother explained her story. You know, she became an orphan when she was uh, seven years old, and then she, she was adopted by her aunt family, who treated like her slave. And when she blossomed into a beautiful young woman. She was sold into a brothel. Oh my god. And she met my grandfather on the job. And mm -hmm. then in 1949, the Chinese Communist Party took over. My grandmother became his concubine. Mm -hmm. And then uh, in 1949, he decided to stay with my grandmother, his concubine. So my grandmother, oh, <laughs> like your father, my grandmother was always very grateful to Chairman Ma. Mm -hmm. yeah, but, I mean, for understand understandable reason. Yeah, so yeah. I become very interested in prostitution. And then another, just six months after that, I went to Shenzhen for a reporting trip. In the southern, in the winds, the humid, my hair is kind of really curly, really wild. So <laughs> I was going to have, get my hair cut. I went to the places where there were a few girls wearing short cuts and, and low-cut dresses. Mm -hmm. and we didn't know how to cut hair. And I looked down, there was no hair shaving. So suddenly it clicked from what kind of place oh, it was. Right. So so um, I just said, oh yeah, why don't you just um, write a book? That's how I um, become interested. And then uh, so, so to write the book, I, you know, I realized that my comfortable middle-class existence, you know, so far removed from mm. this yeah. you know, low-grade uh, Brussels. So I yeah. did lots of research. I, for a while, I owned off, I worked for this NGO in Tianjin, 
and so I you know distributing condoms and <laughs> oh, <laughs> just wow. sitting having a chat with them so in doing just you know after I mm. making become to make friends with them and some of them opened up to me right and I feel prostitution is such a liberally for forgotten topic uh, one of the key social issues in in China mm. uh, that people just trying to brush it under the rug not yes, to talk exactly, about yeah. it um, because I think everyone knows that they're there but mm. nobody wanted to talk about it but then um, I think the government always view it as a problem and always look at issues through the lens of criminality um, you know instead of kind of a, the old they launched kind of crackdown campaign mm. and they never kind of looked into why mm. you know um, there are many of them just the most vulnerable women mm. um, and as Jen, I was mentioning you know widening gender inequality you know that drove some of the most vulnerable women to, to take up the flash trade because that's one of the few choices they have in the book there's a, um, one thing mm. uh, very striking um, is in this girl Lotus in yeah. her room she has this shrine yeah, of yeah. Uh, Buddha. Mm -hmm. If I remember correctly, uh, every time when she's having sex in yeah. the house, yeah. uh, in the room, actually the Buddha can see and she always feel very awkward <coughs> doing that. Why the Buddha in, in the room? Why, why is the setting? Is there anything meaning behind it? My grandmother was a Buddhist prostitute. What's that mean, Buddhist prostitute? My grandmother was a devout Buddhist, and she was also yes. In fact, right. I think her. Oh. In second, in fact, I think her face kept her going. Right. And this is a very interesting. I spent lots of time in Shenzhen and in Tianjin mm -hmm. uh, with among sex workers, and a lot of them have face. I mm. found it so interesting, and I mm. started to research. I couldn't find information because they, you know, prostitution is still a sensitive subject. Mm. It's very difficult for academic do research on the topic. Um, so I, I, I did find uh, one paper written by American academic about the high percentage of people have face mm -hmm. uh, among sex workers in Thailand. Mm -hmm. Because so I think it's now, it's, I, I, I do and I do get it. Because the um, religion provides a kind of ritualized cleansing mm. process, mm -hmm. you know, for them. It's a way right. to cleanse, cleansing themselves. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a really sad situation to be in mm -hmm. and and I think there it must be a yeah. lot of yeah. struggle yeah. and yeah. conflicts yes. within yeah. them. Yeah. Yeah. And I can understand that if they wanted to use the religion to process, uh, to help them process the, yeah. the, the struggle. Yes, and you know that religion and spirituality are the things people tend to when they experience drama. So right. that just, you know, um, they, they suffer from internal conflicts so they mm. tend to yeah. Yeah. and people you know they also know that uh, you know <laughs> if you call if you strictly believing to Buddhist the how could you, <laughs> how could you? So, yeah but people have the ability to compartmentalize. <laughs> right. is it also because Buddhism believe in the next life yes right yes you must uh, behave yourself so you're so, and yes, I was. I I also met a woman um, in um, in Shenzhen. She she goes to church every Sunday. No sex on Sunday. Oh. 
all the time. Yeah. Day off. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I also noticed that in your book you mentioned you know there are four of them, four mm-hmm. girls working in the same yeah, location, yeah, yeah. and they have a very different age. Yeah, uh-huh. Um. Some one I can't remember her name. One. Xia. 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 Yes, yeah, yeah, Xia yeah. is the oldest one. Yeah. And she works really hard. Probably most hardworking mm-hmm. sex worker. Mm-hmm. But apparently she's not that attractive anymore since yeah. she's getting older. But is that a major issue in the prostitution industry? I, I yes. So before I before I get to know them better, I mm. also imagined that you think about sex workers, you think of young girls. Right. But yeah. lots of them not young. No, mm. I met women in their thirties, forties, and one woman that's sixty-five. Sixty-five. Mm. She was. She when I met her, she was wearing this loose, sing as kind of a Beijing kind mm. of singlet. Right, <laughs> just like a, she just like a typical grandma, you know, she was wearing kind of this baggy trousers. Right, and, and but obviously the we were distributing condoms, she accepted them, and she often served taxi drivers and people like that. You know, she had no no choice. Right. Yeah. So it was not that not uh, no under the, the some especially in a, a middle class. Uh, establishment mm. the women work the not not young at all. Mm. Oh. Mm. Also, also very clear. I mean, talking about the emotional conflicts, which is why I think uh, in the end, Brussels is not a bad stage to set uh, for a novel because uh, at the hu- heart of human drama is moral mm. conflicts. So right. mm. yeah, I think. Um, mm. And how I like to get your thoughts on how does you see prostitution. It's a gender inequality because mm, 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 mm. Uh, mo- most of the prostitution that we talk about mm, is men buying mm, sex mm, from mm, women. Mm. And how does that, how do you see that phenomenon which is actually started from long, long time ago and mm. across the whole world, right? Mm-hmm. Since it's not, you know, in China, it's everywhere. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. there's still lots of like places that are legalized, it, you mm. know, like in, in uh, Netherlands. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. how do you see that as? A phenomenon or or social fact to to talk about you know gender equality. Um, while I was in UK recently, I just happened to I li- often listen to BBC. Uh, I interview this woman. She kind of uh, uh, she's calling to abolish that kind of illegal like that. Just try to wipe out. I think it's so unrealistic. And she's from obviously from middle class, and she speaks very proper English. So mm-hmm. I mean. She doesn't understand for many women that that's the only way they can make a living before starving or, you know, what would you do? Sell your body, that's least you can provide for your children, right? Mm-hmm. So just, uh, I mean, what I hope China would do is to treat women as, as human beings. Mm-hmm. Prostitutes in China really do have a raw deal. We have this Shorong Lao Jiao system, which means. Uh, um, it's not a prison, but it's no, no, it's like called a, a cost custody, custody and education. So right. it's a very similar to Logge, mm. which means you can be sent to six months to two years uh, labor camp without a proper legal procedure. Right. So when the police often crack down and they will, this woman get caught or send. So this is terrible. This is just really bad. Um, they, they, under sister, this system, they, they the sex workers' rights are often violated. Mm-hmm. I think there are some people calling to establish red light district or legalize um, mm. 
uh, prostitution in China. Mm-hmm. This, those talks are just not realistic. I mean, as long as China causes a socialist country, it's not possible. But mm-hmm. what they can do is just try to treat them more, is you know, respect them as the as normal human beings. Mm-hmm. Just abolish mm-hmm. this custody, show wrong or jail custody education system system, which gives too much leeway to corruption um, and a violation of human rights. But this system is not only for the prostitute, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's for also for, for example, like people who don't have the residence card of certain yes, cities, yes, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah it's a, it's so that's, a yeah, horrible. It's, it's like it's a similar to logate, but logate system is now being more or less being abolished. They should mm. abolish this as well. Yeah. I uh, watched some documentary before about this kind of topic. I feel like one thing it's come from the the government, but also. Another kind of violence danger come from mm. their customers. Mm. Mm. For example, like in your book, you mentioned yeah. they they were badly beaten yeah. in the bushes yeah. Yeah. when they try to ask for money, mm. right? Mm. After they provide service, mm. you know, they they don't have any protection mm. or safety, mm. and mm. it's just really horrible. So it mm. make me wonder, you know, on one hand. You know they have this dangerous job. Maybe it, it pays much better, of course. Yes, yeah. um, but there's no security. There's no yeah. protection. And you know, one girl in your book uh, mentioned that she got pregnant many times, right? Oh, yes, just so. Oh, yes. Th- yeah, there's so much, so much danger. And on the other hand, for example, Lotus, the main character of of the book, she tried to work as a worker in a local mm-hmm. factory. Mm-hmm. But the salary is really low, yeah. relatively, compared with you know working as a sex worker. Mm-hmm. How to choose? Um, I, I guess for today, it's not like you know you have to, for, for some people, they have to be a prostitute to make a living. Mm-hmm. But for example, like a Lotus, she has a choice she, yes, to make yeah. less money to yeah. work in the factory, yeah. right? It's mm-hmm. safer. At yeah. least she's not going to be bitten mm. by any random guy on the mm. street. Mm. Do you think that's a way for some prostitute and just leave that mm. industry and have a safer life relatively? Some, some, some did manage. Mm. Some did manage, but uh, unfortunately, quite a lot of them got got sucked into it. And some of them, for example, they have they have a boyfriend, uh, just living off them. Awful. I think it's really I found quite amazing that uh, so quite a lot of prostitutes they have just such a burning desire to have real, the, they have desire for more, I mean, we're all longing for love, but they right. just, more so they want to have boyfriends. But mm. I guess, you know, after such fake, you know, intimacy, they want some genuine affection. Mm. But having said that, in their life, I said a prostitute life, sex workers in China, their lives are not easy. But on the other hand, their life not total bleak as, as well. I mean, they... Um, they have women, they often have fun. And I laughed so much when I was hanging out with them. They <laughs> often tell jokes and at the cost of their client. <laughs> yes, and they also, I think they feel empowered by the money they make. Mm. They send money home that improve their relationship with their family, give them certain power. Mm. And uh, they also enjoy, begin to enjoy what city can offer. Now they have mm. a bit of money. You know, one woman, I like, what do you like to she likes um, jam on toast. Jam on oh. toast? Wow. <laughs> such a Western. Uh, yeah, yeah. Sure. Uh, what's their money like going to the supermarket to try different foods? Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I guess you cannot find it in a very remote mountain area. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. 
yeah, we, we talk about all of your work. I mean, I'm very interested in knowing that you're an amazing writer, and all of your writing, I, I feel like it's different from like the writing that I saw, well, the books that I saw written by you know foreign authors, uh-huh, for uh-huh. example, like English native authors, mm-hmm. because you like to put a lot of Chinese things, things and yes. trans- translate them into English, uh-huh. and then but still keep the Chinese flavor. Mm-hmm. You know, how, how do you manage to do that? And also as a Chinese native speaker to write in English, I mean, how many editing did you need to know? <laughs> yeah, did you more need editing to do? than, I can tell you, more editing than the native speaker. But, uh, um, yeah, it is not, it, writing is difficult to full stop. As maybe it's to start with, I should say mm-hmm. why I wanted to write in English. Mm-hmm. And when I was living in Oxford, oh my God, how many years ago? Uh, <laughs> anyway, so in 1991, I was approached by a Chinese publishing company to write a book mm-hmm. about Western image of Chairman Mao. So I spent two years at the Bodian Library, interviewed many people from different walks of life. And I finished the book, but the book didn't pass the censorship. That's spoken in Chinese. So ever since then, I decided I'm going to write in English. Right. Mm-hmm. And so it's not, I said, it's not easy. But on that hand, it's also freed me. Freed me politically. I can say whatever I want to say. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, and also freed me literally, because the English is not my native language. Mm-hmm. So I, that allows me to be more adventurous. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's to, true. Um, I borrow Chinese saying, I right. structured my sentence differently. Um, <laughs> so anyway, so I you know my the editor who read my uh, Lotus and fell in love with the book, and she felt there's such a freshness in the language. Mm. Anyway, now I'm, I'm kind of a Laowang Mei Gua Zi Mei. It's kind of a blowing my own trumpet. But anyway, so yes, it's a it's a struggle, but I it's a challenge. I I enjoy it. Okay, my last question. A lot of our listeners, they are writers themselves. You know, uh-huh. they want to do what you do. You know, have uh-huh. a free life to choose whoever they can uh-huh. write for, and uh, whatever t- topic they, they they want to write about. Uh-huh. As a full time writer, how to make a living? <laughs> uh, that's um, that's getting increasingly difficult. But uh-huh. I feel very fortunate that uh, I also make some money from giving public speeches. I also write articles. I and I gave some lectures at university, mm. and uh, I even some high-end travel company they can invite me to give some lectures that are quite well paid. So oh, yes, yeah. yeah, a variety of things. Yeah. <laughs> Any tips that for for the writer who want to you know step into this industry? Keep writing. I don't have Simple any. Simple as that. Yes, keep writing. Mm. Awesome. And and take on some part-time jobs. <laughs> <laughs> Very important. <laughs> yeah, I take home. It's an interesting or well-paid job. Thank you so much. Oh, pleasure. Yeah. pleasure. Yes, it's such here. a wonderful yeah. talk. Yes. Yeah, we yeah. really appreciate your time. Oh, thank you so pleasure. much. Pleasure. Anytime. Thank you for listening to Woman. If you have any feedback, write to us at womanpodcast, W-O-M-E-N podcast at outlook.com. Oh, 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 oh